You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Hello, everyone. This is Michelle Lamb, and I am here with another episode of Senior Rx Radio, and I am here with my fantastic co-host. Thank you, Michelle. It's Dr. Veronica Riera Gilly, and we're excited to be here at the annual meeting recording some of these episodes that you'll all be listening to later. Yes. Well, Veronica, we are new at this, and one of the great pleasures of having your own podcast in partnership, of course, with ASCP is we get to pick our guests. And when I was asked for this position, I knew someone I wanted, and that is since senior care is near and dear to my heart, Dr. Keith Swanson, my geriatrics professor from the University of Oklahoma. Welcome, Keith. Thank you very much. And it's hard when uh, former students who are now doing great things in practice describe me as their professor. It makes me feel so old. Well, you have done a lot. In fact, let me uh, read a little bit about you and your bio to our listeners. Dr. Keith Swanson is an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy. His practice is based at a senior living community in the Oklahoma City area, where he provides pharmacotherapy care services with an interdisciplinary team of practitioners. His academic activities focus on geriatric topics and non-prescription self-care products. He is currently the chair of the Oklahoma State Board of Examiners for Long-Term Care Administrators and has served as committee and chair of the Certified Geriatric Pharmacist Exam Development Committee and faculty for ASAP's Geriatric Pharmacist Bootcamp. I may be calling you for help. Also a past chair of the Geriatric Special Interest Group of the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy and the guest I knew I had to have on the program. So glad you're here, Keith. Well, thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about what are your responsibilities as a professor of geriatrics in the university? Tell me about your role. Well, my role is fairly, I think, not unique at all. I uh, have to balance both classroom responsibilities, maintaining a clinical practice so that my teaching is current and and reflect what's going on in practice, mentoring students. And then I'm fortunate that on our campus, I do a lot of interdisciplinary activities, working with physicians, uh, PAs, advanced nurse practitioners, through the Division of Geriatrics. Uh, For example, just this last week, we did a session for the social work students down on the the main campus in Norman. So it's kind of nice that I'm touching a lot of different practitioners and showing them what a pharmacist can do. That's wonderful. I'm not going to date myself with my graduation year, but since I graduated, we have gone through COVID and are hopefully just about to the other side. I'd like to hear a little bit about how the pandemic affected your role in a teaching capacity and how it's changed really before and perhaps during and now after. Okay. Interesting question. It was so interesting to be right in the middle of an academic term and overnight move from teaching in a classroom setting to doing everything virtually adapting uh, materials and things like that. We're fortunate in Oklahoma where we had relatively state-of-the-art facilities already, so it wasn't exactly new. But it was so hard to have to lecture basically to a computer screen instead of having 60 or 80 students in, in the classroom in front of you. And most students don't realize how much feedback you get from a live body. And you can tell if you're reaching them, if, uh, if three students are sleeping in the back row, you know you're not keeping their attention versus having some good interaction, things like that. So that was one of the, the biggest things. 
and how it's progressed since then is I'm finding that I'm a little more, I guess, open to doing educational activities in a different environment. For example, even on my rotation, I've gotten to the point where do we really need to sit face-to-face to do something that we could do interactively using, say, a platform like Zoom? And especially with today's gas prices, I find even with my experiential students is, do I need to make you drive 20 miles each way just to sit at a conference table when we could do the same thing in a virtual environment? So it's really changed the way I think about things. And uh, one of the, uh, the examples I have is uh, I had to make a quick trip up to see family up in Nebraska, which is a 500-mile trip each way. And so I was uh, quizzing my experiential students on their patients using my phone on a Zoom platform, and I was in the middle of basically a rural Kansas, flipping from cell tower to cell tower, and doing basically a patient review with the students, and I was just talking to my phone in the front seat of the car. And it really has gotten to this point where, you know, we can teach anywhere. And it's all a matter of engaging people, keeping them active back and forth, keeping them honest in doing so. But this whole idea of it has to be face-to-face has really changed. That's interesting. I hope it was the front seat and the passenger side. Yes, yes, start. I was okay, not driving. Okay, yeah, okay, I, I actually made my wife drive on the interstate, which, which she doesn't like to do. So okay. it was it was. You've mentioned teaching. How about assessment and testing in this world of, of Zoom and uh, virtual learning? The same thing. We have moved to, uh, to platforms where, you know, we don't use paper exams anymore. Everything is done on the computer, which uh, means that we as faculty have to do things sometimes longer up front, have to regulate and monitor, again, just to make sure that academic integrity is being held and things like that. But it's a matter of uh, just doing things so differently. You know, I entered the, uh, the educational arena over 35 years ago when we were still using literally optical slides and slide trays. And to create a slide, you'd have to take a picture of text on a piece of paper, develop the film, and you just didn't change your materials because it cost too much money and too much time. And these days, it's like everything is just fluid. We change slides in front of the students in the classroom. And uh, it's just the, the availability and how we transmit information is just so different these days. Do you find that the students' expectations have also changed from... I know when I was a student, it was kind of death by PowerPoint and the information would wash over me. I feel in this day uh, of TikTok and just rapid information, almost there's an expectation to be entertained. Oh, absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that entertaining and the idea that information is so instantaneous. Part of the things, and I, I honestly don't want to be labeled as one of those generational kind of things, but the whole idea, too, that internet information is going to change over time, so there's no reason to really ingrain something when you know that, one, you can find it in 10 seconds or less, and at some point it's going to change on you. So it's almost like we're not really deeply ingraining these, these concepts, and as long as you know how to find information, and assess it quickly, maybe that's the skills that uh, people are having to learn now. But this whole idea of memorizing something, knowing it's gonna change or you're gonna have to adapt it is rapidly changing the way I practice, what I expect of my students. But also I find myself still going back to back when I was a student kind of things is in greeting how you don't know what you've got now and you don't know how this is gonna change over the next 40 years of your practice life. And unless our students win the lottery tonight, 
I don't know whether the 1.2 billion was <laughs> earned the other day, but this whole idea that you've got to be able to and willing to to adapt over time and change your point of view. So we've talked a lot about content delivery. Let's talk about the information itself. What have you seen during your tenure in academia as far as how just the lecture material has changed, whether it's drugs or guidelines, disease states? What's new? What have you seen change? Well, I think you brought up the term guidelines. Uh, early in my practice, nobody had guidelines. Nobody wanted to admit to guidelines in that we were practicing medicine by recipe. So with the information age and things like that, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is based on this, I guess, a, a clinical trial that comes out that has, you know, this, this tremendous uh, outcome data available, which, of course, in the past, we had no outcome data. It was all based on, you know, the art of medicine. But in the same way, I'm finding that students sometimes grapple with it, especially in my patient population, which, of course, aren't included in the guidelines at all. The frail elderly population are all excluded, but students will go ahead and memorize this kind of, this is what you do first and second and third, mainly to pass an exam, because that's their, their, their first step. But then being able to adapt that to maybe a patient that, that doesn't fit the parameters of the, of the study in the first place, and then how to adjust that, account for maybe adverse reactions that prevent from you from using, say, the first line or second line drug, and then moving down the line and using a logic to then adapt, I guess, the therapy to something else. That's interesting. I never thought about there being controversy around the existence of a guideline. Yeah. Because again, the guideline has a very narrow focus as far as who they, they tested it in. And then you then have to kind of open up and adapt it to the patient base that you're working with. So I know that you are the chapter advisor for ASCP at the University of Oklahoma. Talk to me a little bit about the faculty advisor perspective and also, you know, why should a student join their oh, chapter at the university? Great question. One is I've enjoyed being a, a chapter advisor since we started the chapter, oh, probably 12, 15 years ago. So it's been around for some period of time. I find it a, a vehicle to maybe open some eyes of students where, again, sometimes it's, uh, you know, difficult actually getting them in the room to talking about it. But so, so many students don't understand some of the options available to them, especially in long-term care or in, in senior care, things like that. It's always exciting to me to see someone, you know, that's, that's listening. And oftentimes, I'll just admit that uh, serving free pizza or free lunch gets people into the room and then you catch them with what we're working on. But for somebody to see, hey, I'd never really had thought about this as a potential role, and then becoming active in the chapter, maybe working with us when we go out and do one of our community events or something like that, and then really seeing where they have a role in taking care of people and not just uh, maybe dispensing a product. That's really interesting. A follow-up question to the, the student experience and exposure to long-term care. I know I was surprised by some of the emotions I would feel in long-term care facilities. Everything from the best day with trick-or-treaters or the Johnny Cash impersonator, my personal favorite. Oh, wait till Elvis shows up. Oh, Elvis is, is it's <laughs> a, it's second place. But then you also have some really emotionally charged experiences when you have a, a resident that, you know, has passed away since your last consult mm -hmm. or that's really struggling with some kind of scary or troubling behaviors in a common area. Can you talk about just that emotional charge of what it's like to be a student in that environment for the first time? Yeah, I think so, too. And I try to warn my students with that and, and recognize that you're working with individuals at times could be the worst part of their life. Their failing health, their loss of independence, 
maybe not having family as actively involved as they wish to and things like that. And we too have experienced that same thing where I've been fortunate to work with a, an attending physician who will bring my students into environments where he typically doesn't bring his own medicine residents, whether it's because he thinks they've seen that before or the callousness or just the idea that a pharmacy student needs to see this. So to be able to be at the bedside with an individual within hours of their death is really kind of pressing. And some students deal with it, some people's don't. But the whole idea that at some point in their life they may be entitled to that. If I'm allowed a personal story, I always tell my students when they come in that each year I want at least one of my students to cry. And I told that to students that they think, oh, am I going to be the one? But it's a good cry. I'm reminded uh, when, again, you were one of our uh, Tulsa distance campus students and things like that. So when we were developing that program and hiring faculty for the, the Tulsa campus, I was at the ASHP meeting helping to uh, recruit faculty. And so it was me and two of the uh, associate deans who were, I, I use the term pharmacists, pharmacist. So again, you know, Jack Coffey and Carl Lines, both of them had been national presidents of their respective organizations, were well known across the country. So I'm standing with them, and I was relatively new to the Oklahoma family. And a young woman came up and talked to me and said, oh, Dr. Swanson, I haven't seen you for 10 years. It was a student that I had uh, worked with out at Rutgers on the East Coast. And uh, she says, you're the only faculty member that ever made me cry. You know, and of course, these two new bosses looked at me like, who have we hired here? Something's going on here. Well, this young lady had been in my first group of students at the hospital. And I've always used journal clubs as a teaching tool. And we got about five minutes into her presentation. I said, stop. You don't want me to grade this here. You need to go back tonight, work on this a little bit more, and come back in. And I guess she left the room crying. I didn't know. I don't remember. But um, the next day, she did find it a great presentation. Well, she had never really been pressed before to do her best. And so she said, because of you, I'm now a faculty member at this Northeast University, University up in Northeast uh, United States. So it was one of these things where my role as a faculty member expecting higher expectations forced someone else to do their best. So, really so I always tell my students, I want somebody to cry this year. Do you pass out Kleenex during orientation? No, that, no okay. that's up to them. Okay. That's up to gotcha. them. You've talked some about your role as an educator. Do you have any tips for our listeners that might work in geriatrics or long-term care now that might be seeking out an academic position, even an adjunct role? Okay. Yeah, I really do. I think the biggest thing is don't be intimidated. We all think that we need to be the same as the faculty member that we worked with or something like that. But we all have something that we can teach someone. And we all, I think, have a responsibility to really bring the next generation up once we're gone because they need to fill our roles. They won't fill the role exactly as we did because the experiences I had as a young faculty member when clinical pharmacy was totally new. My first job, the director of pharmacy said, well, your job role is to do what a PharmD does, whatever that is. Again, so nobody knew what clinical pharmacy was on the East Coast when I started. And I uh, had the, uh, the opportunity to start clinical services in a 500-bed teaching hospital, where it was me and 300 physicians. So, you know, so my background is totally different. What I had to do is totally different. So the students or young learners, early practitioners, their environment is different. So they have to come in and do what they can do using the tools they have. But every pharmacist has something they can teach someone. And we do it alongside with us, shoulder to shoulder, showing them what we do. 
Another thing I, I say is I, sometimes you have to force me to use my words and actually talk about what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and what I think you should be doing in setting those expectations. So it's really kind of a thing. But again, I think all of us should be teaching someone. And I know as a, the typical consultant pharmacist, again, where your time is so valuable, again, knowing that a student can sometimes slow you down a little bit, but just recognize that if we don't teach this next generation, there will be no one to step in and take over for us. And ultimately, our job is to protect the safety of the people in the state or the area that you're practicing. That's really interesting. Uh, we worked together when I was your student and then later as a colleague and a faculty member. And I know I often would feel imposter syndrome as a new instructor. Still yes. there. I'm still there every day. Yes. And uh, what I like to tell myself is I don't have to know everything. I just have to know a little bit more than my learners. And that really helped yeah. me through it. Well, in the old days when we actually used textbooks, we always say we just have to be one page ahead of the class. Ah, one page ahead. Now perhaps it's just one click. Yeah, one click one and click. things like that. But I think the biggest thing, too, is recognizing the, the, the background experience you have and how it can add to the new information that's coming out. And I think ultimately I, uh, the reason why I think the healthcare system is willing to pay us is the idea of adapting and assessing information as it comes across to us. I think so that's maybe the biggest thing. Yeah, that's important. You've talked about your role in serving at a teaching hospital, which I imagine involved creation of partnerships and coalitions. During the last part of our time together, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how long-term care professionals, consultants can build those coalitions within their states or even nationwide with colleagues, perhaps even from other disciplines. Okay, I think that's great. And this is one area I think in the last probably oh, five to 10 years of, of uh, my current uh, role, where I've been most in, engaged and excited. I'm very fortunate that I sit on a couple of just ad hoc committees that kind of sprung up from the ground when we all discovered that there were difficulties with transitions of care. So I started working, for example, with our local QIO. Now that is the, uh, the required organization that uh, CMS has to have in each area. Currently they have uh, them in, in regions that used to be state by state. But worked with our local QIO recognizing they had the same goal of improving health care as I did, but instead of just working in a small number of facilities, they're doing it across the whole state. And now with the current QIO that we work with, it's across the region. And for our listeners, can you talk about QIO? Okay. So QIO, Quality Improvement Organization, is a, is a required almost organization that CMS has because uh, if we're spending the billions or trillions of dollars, we should also be improving healthcare. So every five years, there's a request for proposals where these outside organizations bid for the work and they call them scopes of work. And uh, CMS will then identify what has to be in that scope of work. So I was kind of fortunate at that point, it was about 10, 12 years ago, where one of the scopes of work happened to be medication safety. So they then basically enlisted the College of Pharmacy as a partner, and we did a project with them. That work then, uh, uh, they liked the data that I was producing out of the long-term care facility I was working in. So then I was invited by the QIO to work on a project that they had funded by the State Department of Health through civil penalty funds. So when uh, CMS penalizes a nursing home or a facility for not living up to the quality standards, the money gathered goes into a pot and then it has to be spent on basically improvement activities. So we had this, uh, this project that I work with, again, with the QIO and the Department of Health because they received the data that we put together and was fortunate to be able to then uh, actually fund half of my salary for three years 
going out and, and collecting data and, and, and uh, improving care in 12 different nursing homes across the state. So it was such an engaging and energizing experience that it kind of opened my eyes to, hey, we need to kind of look beyond just our students and just the facility we're working in. And there are partners across the state or region that are trying to do the same thing, only they work on a bigger scale. And they're really kind of putting projects together that then can be ramped up and used in multiple facilities. Wow, Keith, that's impressive. So Way it was, to go on the co-funding for an <laughs> academic position. Yeah, that could be thought of. Yeah, and, and again, any any uh, faculty member could look at it. And again, reach out to your state Department of Health. And, uh, you know, in Oklahoma, there are millions of dollars sitting there waiting for projects to be funded. Okay. Well, I thank you so much for your time and the information that's been so helpful. How could our audience reach out to you if they had questions? I think probably the biggest thing is uh, maybe just uh, look at the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy website. My information is listed there. I'll uh, warn you that the picture listed is a few years uh, older than I am, so there's a lot less gray hair than I have right now. This this is a radio program, so I don't think our audience will mind. Well, thank you so much, Keith. It was a pleasure to see you. Well, and thank you for the invitation. This was really great. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.